Good uh, morning, everyone. My name is Bill McCurran. I'm one of the elders here. Uh, and I was afraid that I wasn't going to uh, be able to make it back in time uh, to preach. I was in Ohio at the annual convention of uh, Muscle Magazine. Um, and they uh, voted, voted me Mr. Before. <laughs> it's a great honor. I'll try not to let it go to my head. And I don't care what they've told you, looking at these two rows here, I did in fact brush my teeth this morning, and I did gargle. So nothing's going to happen if you sit there. So um, I love this particular uh, verse that we're going to talk about, which will be up on the screen and now. It's from Romans 6, verse 14. It says, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Uh, earlier this week, I was praying for a way to introduce this subject. And God provided in a very unexpected way. Dana and I went to dinner with some dear friends on Friday. Um, and uh, we were just talking about interaction with other people. And they were sharing that they belong to a group um, that gets together very regularly. And they do this as a way to witness for Christ. Uh, they both grew up Catholic. They are not Catholic now, but they grew up in that faith and they're very strong believers, they have a very strong understanding of the gospel. But many of the people in this group are Jewish. And so when they were together, as a group, the wife threw out a question to the group just to get conversation started. And uh, the question was, who has more guilt, Jews or Catholics? <laughs> and her husband, without missing a beat, said, oh, Jews have more guilt. And they were kind of startled, and they said, well, why do you, why do you say that? And he said, well, Jews are under the law and Catholics are under grace. And I go, oh, my, what a, I said, can I use that on Sunday? Uh, because that is exactly the kind of thing that this particular, this is not even a full verse. This is just one of the verses in the Bible that continually amazes me. Um, the Bible is full of these one-sentence power-packed phrases, um, and it reminds me of a great theologian who, in describing the Bible, said that a child can wade in it with no fear of drowning, and yet it's so deep that no scholar will ever reach its depths. And this little passage is an example of that. One of the uh, leaders in our church, Kylie Lee, was in discussion 
um, with life group leaders, and she said something that helped me tremendously understand the gospel better. She used this phrase, the gospel package. And I said, what do you mean the gospel package? And she said, well, it's what Jesus has done for us, what Jesus is doing in us, and what Jesus is doing through us. And this verse gives us a chance to sort of see the gospel package at work in one sentence. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. So, first of all, I want to tell you that this verse is not a command, nor is it an exhortation but it's a statement of joyous victory. So let me give you an example. In a minute, Adrian is going to turn to a clip for me. How many of you have seen the movie Prometheus? All right, there weren't enough science geeks in the first service, but I'm a geek in that regard. So uh, they have landed on this planet um, and they encounter the sort of super race that they believe started mankind called the engineers. They're nine feet tall, alabaster white. And on this planet are those terrible creatures that seem to be invincible, that you know are in the egg and they jump out and go in, well, you know it. So in this clip, one of the surviving engineers, I think it's on planet 229, is trying to break into the spaceship to kill the heroine. And he gets trapped by a trilobite. All right? Let her roll. Wasn't that fun? <laughs> All right, now, uh, the engineer is nine feet tall, heavily muscled, m 10 times stronger than any normal human being, and he is in the grips of this trilobite, and no matter how hard he struggles, he cannot get loose. The trilobite has dominion over him. His efforts are hopeless. And for those outside Christ, those who do, even those in Christ who don't really understand the power of the gospel, sin can have dominion over us in the way this trilobite had dominion over the engineer. Sin has us in its grip, and we, we're struggling under our own power. I don't, I don't want to feel lust. I don't want to be guilty. I don't. I don't want to be selfish. I don't want to be unforgiving. And like in this movie, he just, his strength ran out. He was completely overcome. But Paul is telling us that sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. And 
So Paul is not saying in this passage here that victory over sin is a mere possibility. He's telling us that it's a divine inevitability. Excuse me. There you are. I can hear you. Now I can see you. Um, And it is a divine inevitability because of the finished work of Christ, what he has done for us and what he is doing in us. So let me read a passage from John 19, verse 30. I'm going to read a couple of passages, which are the last words that Jesus spoke from the cross. John 19:30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. In Matthew 27, describing the same time frame, it says, Now when the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. And then it said, Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So when Jesus is saying it is finished, we can look at this as the exhausted words of a dying man. But when we read it in context with the last statements of Jesus, this is not the barely audible word of a defeated man. It is a victory cry for the person who has won the battle. So when when the centurion sees Jesus, now this centurion has been in many battles. He knows what it's like at the end of the battle when you have survived and won. Uh, If some of you happen to watch Villanova win the NCAA finals for the second time in a row, if you saw the reaction of the Villanova players, they were like shouting was yes! This cry, it is finished, was that cry of victory. It was not the defeated whimper of a dying man. It was the victory cry of the Lord Jesus Christ who had overcome sin by dying on the cross for us. Uh, With that, one of my favorite hymns is from the song, It is uh, In Christ Alone. And Adrian is going to put that up on the slide as you read along with me. It says, there in the, oh, to show you that God is merciful, I'm going to read this and not sing it. Everybody say hallelujah. Hallelujah. (laughs) There in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain. Then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again, and as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. For I am his, and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. So Christ's victory is our victory. Because sin does not have dominion over Jesus and we are in Christ, it no longer has dominion 
over us. I want to sort of break down some of the ways that sin ceases to have dominion over the believer. One is that sin has lost its dominion because the law has lost its power to provoke us. Um, Not because the law is bad, uh, but because we're sinners. Uh, Because we're sinners, we are provoked by the existence of law to violate it. Let me give you an example. You've seen this and you may have done it. You're walking through the park. There is a bench. On the bench is a sign. What does the sign say? Wet paint. Do not touch. When you see that sign, you have to go over and touch it. Now, if the sign had not been there, you would never have noticed the bench. It would have been completely irrelevant to you. But because we are sinners, whether it's the Mosaic law, whether it's the natural law, whether it's do unto others as you would have them do unto you, when we see the law, our natures cause us to fight against it, to test it, to see the boundaries. But when we are in Christ, sin loses its ability to provoke, I mean, I'm sorry, law loses its ability to provoke us. I'll unpack that a little bit later as we go along. So sin loses its dominion because it loses its power to provoke us to sin, but also it loses its dominion because the gospel frees us from the allure of sin, the attractiveness of sin. I want to illustrate this through another video clip. How many of you remember the animated film A Bug's Life? Well, we have three kids. I don't think there's an animated film made by Disney that I have not seen. Uh, So I want you to watch closely this biblical example of the allure of sin. Adrian? That's what sin does to us. It, it, the, the, the law, um, sin has, law has lost its dominion because the gospel frees us from the allure of sin, and it teaches us what sin is. That false attractiveness, like in Beowulf, the one starring Angelina Jolie, it's kind of a new kind of animated film and and the hero is swimming out to battle the beast and he finally conquers this beast and it's a horrible, vile, ugly dragon and he's ready to kill it as it comes out of the water and it morphs into Angelina Jolie and instead of doing battle with it, he goes And that's what sin does when we don't understand what it is. 
And the gospel enables us to identify sin as sin. I remember listening to a radio program when I was a lawyer and I was driving to North County to take a deposition and the man was talking about the value of being married and having non-monogamous relationships. And I'm going, what's a non-monogamous relationship? And I'm driving along and I realize, oh, he's talking about adultery. He just put a new name on it so that it almost sounded right, a non-monogamous relationship. Sin has that tendency to call sin by a different name. It's not covetousness, it's ambition. It's not greed, it's just having what rightfully belongs to me. It's not lust, it's just admiring a beautiful form. It's not pornography, it's just another form of entertainment. You can go on and on and on. The gospel frees us Grace frees us by enabling us to identify sin for exactly what it is. So we are not under sin, under law, because law has lost its dominion because the gospel frees us from the allure of sin, from the thought that sin is actually attractive. We are not under the law in the sense that we are not saved by obeying the law. Uh, So now we turn to what Christ is doing in us. We are saved by grace. God loved us and committed himself to us at the beginning of creation. Uh, Adrian is going to put up uh, Psalm 139. Um, verse 16 my wife introduced me to this verse it says your eyes the psalmist is writing to God your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me when as yet there were none of them and I said wow that's amazing while I was still in my mother's room and had not lived yet a day. God knew all my days. He was already committed to me. And my wife, who has just an excellent theological mind, said, that's not what it's saying. I go, what do you mean? This verse, she said, is saying that before God created days, before he said, let there be light, we will call the light day and the evening night. Before that happened, before there was ever a day, God knew all your days, everything you would ever do, before there were that any days created, and committed himself to us at that time. Having committed himself to it, us at that time, there is nothing that you and I can do to move ourselves out of his love. There's nothing we can do to make him love us more or love us less. So the gospel takes the law from outside as an external force and replaces it with grace on the inside. It's it's an 
internal force. Sometimes you can call it expulsive grace. So no longer an external force we must obey. It's an internal force compelling us to obey. Um, It's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.14 that the love of Christ constrains us or controls us. And the Hebrew word that is translated as constrained in the King James, controlled in the English standard, is a military term for the bit that is in the mouth of a war horse. The rider controls the movement of the horse by how he yanks on the bit. Christ's love is that kind of bit in our mouths. First John says, we love because... He first loved us. Let me let me give an, a practical illustration. Uh, before I met Dana, my wife, for some of you who do not know her, I fooled around a lot. But after I met her, and I met her when I was an unbeliever, I had no interest in God. In fact, it would be fair to say I was an enemy of God by the way I lived. But after I met her, I stopped fooling around. I wanted to stop fooling around. Love had compelled me to stop. The promise of what I would have in that relationship was greater than the temptation in front of me. And then after we got married, the reality of what I now had was greater than the temptation before me. So I am not a particularly moral person. I'm not a particularly strong person. I'm not a particularly wise person. But from the time I met Dana, not just the time we got married, but from the time I met Dana, which was 49 years ago, we've been married 47 this coming August, I have never even kissed another woman romantically. Now, I'm not saying that to draw any attention to myself any more than pointing out, be careful, that's dog poop on the ground, don't step in it. But it was that love that compelled me, if you would, to act out of character. And then once I became a believer, that love took on entirely new dimensions that made the pull of sexual sin much less attractive, much less powerful than the gift of what I had in my, in my life. And that's what the gospel does. It takes that old allure and replaces it with a new attraction. So there's this great Psalm 37.4 that says, when we commit our ways to the Lord, when we trust in him, it says, commit thy way into the Lord, trust in him, and he will give you the desires of your heart. That verse can be misread to say, commit your way to the Lord and trust in him, and he'll give you whatever you want. That is not what the verse is saying. It is saying, When we commit to the Lord and when we trust in him, he will give us right desires and he will bring it to pass. So we are not under the law in the sense that 
now we have this new inner compulsion to obey out of love. It's a sense of expulsive grace. I call it, I don't call it, it's called expulsive grace because it expels those things that pull us away from God, pull us away from community, and it attracts us to the things that bring us closer to God. So, now we are not under the law in the sense that we no longer need to work to continue to have God's love and favor. Uh, We don't obey God in order to gain his love and favor. We already have his full love and acceptance through Jesus Christ. That is part of what it means to be in Christ. So in John 17, Jesus says, Father, as I am in you and you are in me, cause them to be in us. So Jesus has asked his father, if you read John 17, to love us believers the same way the father loves his only begotten son. That is to me just a mind-boggling thought that the father has committed his love to us in the same way he's committed this eternal, overwhelming, unchanging love to his son. I want to bring up the words of another writer who said, the principle of obedience in God is love and not fear. And that same author went on to say this, which you see on the slide. The only hope, therefore, of sinners is in freedom from the law, freedom from its condemnation, freedom from the obligation to fulfill it as the condition of acceptance, and freedom from its spirit. Those who are thus free, who renounce all dependence on their own merit or strength, who accept the offer of justification as a free gift of God, and who are assured that God, for Christ's sake, is reconciled to them, are so united to Christ that they partake of his life and their holiness thereafter, hereafter are rendered perfectly certain. So we are not under the law in the sense that we're not under any obligation to earn or later try to deserve God's favor. We already have that completely in Christ. But we are not under the law, as the writer says, we no longer have any condemnation. Now think about going back to the dominion of sin. Sin has this duality and trapping us. The first thing it says, that's not a sin. You're just being yourself. You're just expressing yourself. You're just experimenting. You're just, you're just having a little fun. Everybody has fun. You have worked so hard this week. You deserve it. So it makes it really small and inconsequential. But then you do it. Then you do it. And sin reverses its face. And it says, you lousy, hypocritical Christian. You call yourself a Christian and you did that? So not only does it trap you, it lures you in and then says, you're disgusting for having done that. It gives you no way out. It gives you no way out. 
But then the gospel comes and it says, repent. Not in order to gain my favor, not in order to cause me to love you. Repent because you have my favor, because I do love you. So the gospel gives us a way out where the law doesn't give us a way out. We keep having to go back and we say, oh, I'm so rotten. How can I keep doing this? And grace says, come, my son. Come, my daughter. I'm going to get you through this. So, let me take another look at this duality. When we sin, as we certainly will, I do, I do have to say I had one remarkable period when I was without sin. And I remember saying, wow, God, so far I have, I have not sinned. I, I have not lusted after women. I've not sworn. I've not said anything gossipy about anyone. And I said, Lord, but I'm about to get out of bed now. <laughs> and I think it's going to be a lot harder. So when we fail, we turn to Christ and thank him for bearing our punishment. We ask the Holy Spirit, who already indwells us, to enable us to turn all our attention and the attention of our friends to praise to Christ, our Redeemer who lived the life we cannot live and died the death we will never have to experience. One evening in our life group, we were tossing around a question that Pastor Stephen had put out to life groups based on the previous Sunday's sermon. And um, one of the questions was, what would you say if someone called you a liar and a sinner? And one of our life group members, without missing a beat, said, guilty as charged. And I looked at him, and I marveled. Guilty as charged. But he is not beating himself up about it because grace has freed him. He knows, yes, it's a sin. But Jesus has borne all my sins on the cross. I am in him. I am loved by him, accepted by him. So I'm just going to keep moving on. So that's what we do when we fail. We can always turn to God and say, I've, I failed again. I, I did the thing that I said I didn't want to do. I've done again without any thought that God is in heaven going like this. But rather, God is in heaven, arms extended, saying, I love you. I'm committed to you. Come. He never pushes us away. He's always drawing us in. That happens when we fail. The other problem is when we succeed. We've had a pretty good day. We've kind of done some really spiritual things. We've shared the gospel with somebody. When we turned on the computer, we didn't go to that bad page. 
you know? And we begin to think, man, I'm really getting this. So what we do when we succeed, we turn to Christ and thank him for his indwelling Holy Spirit who causes us to live rightly. And we ask the Holy Spirit to protect us from trying to take the credit for living rightly and instead turn my attention and the attention of others to Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. I have told my family that when I die, which shall happen, one of the hymns at my funeral must be Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. And here's one of the verses. And again, to bless you, I will read it and not sing it. Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet sung by flaming tongues above. Praise the mount, I'm fixed upon it, mount of thy unchanging love. Jesus makes all this possible. First, he has taken away all the eternal punishment for our sin. Second, he's taken away that beleaguering, exhausting guilt by which we continually condemn ourselves and say, I'm not worthy, I'm a terrible person, and it just saps our energy, saps our vitality. He takes all that away. He says, look, that's not who you are is in Christ. Yes, you fail, but I succeeded where you failed, and tomorrow when you fail, I will have succeeded in that area. Third, rather than isolate us, Jesus places us into a vibrant spiritual community sometimes called church, for at least three reasons. One, we see examples of others as they work out the difficult issues of life. We say, my goodness, he or she has really, they're really doing it. Second, there are people in that spiritual community who exhort us, encourage us, challenge us, and bear with us life's burdens as we go through life. I'll give you an example. I have a friend who's Chinese named Jeff. Jeff is a marvelous man. His testimony, if you heard it, would break your heart. It's full of betrayal, tragedy, pain, all born as a young person, barely a teenager. And yet out of that, God has produced a wise, sensitive, caring man. And when I hear, when I think of Jeff's testimony, I'm encouraged, I'm emboldened. Third, Jesus sends us forth to enlarge and strengthen community. Last week, uh, Laura Cresswell, one of our members, shared her testimony about really, really difficult time in her life and how God has brought her through it and strengthened her and now has equipped her to help other women who are going through their own struggles. Finally, 
Jesus makes all this possible through his Holy Spirit who teaches us to be both humble and bold. Christianity is the only religion that compels us to be humble and to be bold. Paul is a perfect illustration. In the very early part of his ministry, Paul said, I am the least of the apostles. Somewhere during the middle of his ministry, he said, I am the least of the saints. But by the close of his ministry, his humility had grown so much that he said, I am the chief of sinners. So we are humble in Christ because we don't become prideful as we grow in Christ. We don't consider ourselves better than others. You are able to learn from a janitor as easily as we can learn from a CEO. We can look at a single mother struggling with her child and see the kind of courage that we want to have. We know that God will speak through a person whether they have no degree or multiple degrees, whether they speak flawless English or flawed English, whether they come from the wrong side of the tracks or from Beverly Hills. We're able to be humble before all people. But God also says he wants us to be bold so that we can lovingly live out the gospel in the face of our own sinfulness and the sinfulness of others so that we might lovingly help someone who's going through a struggle. One quick example. I was in Colorado Springs. I was getting ready to speak at a men's conference which was starting the next day. And a family with two sons had invited me to spend the night at their home. We would drive to the retreat together, the, the men, um, and the wife picked a, a fabulous meal. And there were the two sons and their best friend. They were the three musketeers from youth. They were now about 22, 23, but they'd been best friends living on the same street all their lives. And the Spirit of God said to me, he is trapped in pornography. Now, I'd never met him before. And so after dinner, I just said to the table, I'd like to ask uh, the young man a question. Um, how are you handling pornography? And I started with the youngest son, and he talked about what he was doing in his life. That, that was good. I knew the Spirit told me, do not start with the guy on the end, go last. And we talked about it, went to the second son, we talked about it, and I turned to the third guy and I said, and brother, what about you? And he burst into tears to the shock of everybody at the table because although they had been best friends, they had no inkling of what he was struggling with. He was overwhelmed by guilt. And so we just spent the time praying for him, loving him, and giving him practical ways. Okay, we're going to set up a monitor on your computer. That's before you could access stuff through cell phones like you can today. 
and it, it, it all worked out. And I'm, I want to tell you, it was a slow but a, a real victory in the young man's life. Humility, boldness. I wasn't better than him. I am a sinner who is worse than him. But the boldness comes not from a desire to confront, but from a desire to uplift and to help. So we are not under the law. We are under grace. And, you know, I heard the statement about what it means to share the gospel, which is I've never been able to forget. And that is sharing the gospel is just one beggar telling another beggar where to find food. So let me have you think about something this week. Try consciously thanking Christ through his spirit and for his spirit instead of self-condemnation or self-congratulation. If you are not sure that Christ's spirit indwells you, please speak to one of our elders or some other member of the church and ask them what this salvation thing is all about. When um, Martin Luther King talked about race relations, he liked to quote an old black minister who after slavery said this, Lord, we ain't what we should be. And we ain't what we're going to be. But thank God we ain't what we was. So this week, when self-condemnation or self-congratulation confronts you, say to yourself, Lord, I ain't what I should be. And I ain't yet what I'm going to be. But I thank you, Lord, that I ain't what I was. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you have broken the power of sin in our lives, that you have taken away its power and its allure and replaced it with your loving kindness and mercy. Cause us to be vessels of grace. Open our hearts to your continuous grace in our lives and even the smallest things and enable us to be on the lookout as to how we can share your grace with others this week. Amen.